Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network live and worldwide from our studios in Washington, D.C., which I guess I should, in the interest of full disclosure, confess that is actually my kitchen table now because I haven't been able to get into the studio for months because of the pandemic. But we shall persevere with a program today as we talk to writer and director Christopher Munch about his new movie, The 11th Green, and uh, filmmaking in general. The program is a service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or if you're a meeting planner, get together at the virtual marketplace on SpeakerMatch.com and find one another, whether it's for an online event this year or an in-person keynote speech next year, SpeakerMatch.com is the place to be. So, Christopher Munch, he's an award-winning writer, director, film auteur, but most of all, he's a good guy, and he was good enough to visit with us about his new movie, The 11th Green, which is a pretty fascinating film. Chris joins us from Los Angeles. Hello, sir. Uh, Hello, Burke. It's a pleasure to be with you. The pleasure is all mine, and wow, what an interesting, mind-bending movie The 11th Green is. Congratulations. Thanks so much. I'm I'm happy it's finally seeing the fine the to- I'm happy it's finally seeing the light of day. Let, let's rewind to the beginning. I read that you started as like a student filmmaker before you were even out of high school. So tell me about a young Chris Munch. Were you one of those kids that always knew what he wanted to do? I knew from around the age of eleven or so. My uh, grandfather on my mother's side was a movie maker. He. Uh, originally was a newsreel cameraman for Fox Movie Tone uh, in the 1920s when he first came to America and then wow. later later worked in Mexico City in films. Uh, so as I say, I made my first Super 8s beginning around the age of 11. Uh, when I was 18, I wrote a feature film to make, uh, which wasn't a bad script, but it turned into a really bad film. So I had a couple of abortive feature efforts in the 80s before I actually made a film that, that came out. And your dad was uh, a scientist of some note. He was. My father was an astronomer and astrophysicist. Uh, He did a lot of work in stellar atmospheres and uh, the galactic medium, uh, um, uh, sorry, the interstellar medium. (laughs) And he did a lot of work on the planetary probes that NASA and JPL uh, uh, put up in the 60s and 70s. And now your new movie, The 11th Green, has sort of this sci-fi, extraterrestrial feel. I wonder what your dad would think of this movie, or I wonder if growing up in that environment somehow in the back of your mind influenced you making this movie. That's possible. I mean, the only time I ever really spoke with him about the subject matter of the film was once I was involved in making it. And my interest was really more in sort of picking his brain for his insights about some of the... Uh, figures that he knew when he was uh, younger, um, uh, who were his contemporaries, some of whom, you know, might have had an involvement in this in this area. So, uh, uh, you know, I think he was kind of agnostic about uh, the proposition of, of extraterrestrial visitation, although as a scientist, he, uh, I think, would compute the strict requirements for life and maybe look around and be skeptical about it. So your dad was a big deal astrophysicist. Tell me about your mom. My mother was a writer. Uh, She worked um, uh, as a society reporter for a paper, but she also worked in a lot of uh, programs, uh, social programs in the 60s in the Great Society. Uh, She uh, worked in East Los Angeles uh, 
and uh, was an arts administrator as well for, for a number of public arts programs. Did they buy into it when you said, Mom and Dad, I want to be in show business. I want to make movies. Or did they try to you know, talk you out of it and say, hey, hey, look, that's great. That could be a hobby, but you need to get a real job and get a real education. How did they come down on this whole thing? Well, they never tried to talk me out of it. My mother, I think, had hoped uh, when I was young that I would gravitate towards you know, more commercial movies. I was a big fan of the uh, Bengali director, Satyajit Ray, and I think that frustrated her a little bit, and she wondered why I wasn't uh, more admiring of somebody like Spielberg. Uh, my father, on the other hand, I think took a wait-and-see attitude, and he certainly supported me from, you know, the earliest efforts, uh, but it was a wait-and-see attitude for him. I think when I finally I received a Guggenheim Fellowship uh, early in my career, and, and he had also received a Guggenheim Fellowship early in his career, so I think at that point uh, he bought into the idea that maybe I would amount to something. Chris Munch is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. His new movie is The 11th Green and available for a, a theatrical at home viewing and in theaters here and there. And I... Um, I just, as I've, I've learned more about you, Chris, I, I think that it's it's a really sort of different way to go about a movie career. And you touched on that a little bit when you said, you, you know, maybe your mom would have wished you were more in the, the Spielberg vein. Um, for folks that do different kinds of cinema like you do, um, that, that's maybe a little off the beaten path, you know, do you get excited about a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark movie or a big popcorn film? I mean, are you are you a fan of that stuff or uh, are you very sort of anti-mainstream cinema? I wonder where you come down on that. I'm not anti-mainstream uh, cinema. Um, you know, I like intelligent filmmaking, whether it's in an entertainment genre or more in an art film genre. I like seeing stars in films, even though as a filmmaker, I have uh, ambivalent feelings about the necessity to have stars in order to finance a film. So uh, I see a lot of stuff. But, you know, I think, unfortunately, what we find nowadays is that it's very rare to see a big film that is also challenging because uh, most often the big films, meaning big budget and even big in scope, uh, have some sort of lowest common denominator or are part of a franchise. So I guess the films that appeal to me are ones that are mounted at a big scale, uh, but also are smart, uh, uh, poetic films uh, like Terrence Malick's recent film this last year um, uh, set in Germany uh, during the war. So if, just for the sake of argument, if somebody came to you and said, you know, Michael Bay wants you to direct the new Transformers film, Chris, and you've got a $100 million budget and your take home is X number of millions of dollars, what would you do with, with that information? Well, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, I mean, for somebody who grew up on you know, some of the great roadshow films of the, of the 60s, uh, like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, the, the other lean epics as well. Um, uh, and, f you know, large filmmaking that was also very good filmmaking. Uh, I, would, I would say if that's what this is, I, I would be very enthusiastic about getting involved with it. But, you know, there are people who do that a lot better than I do probably. I think uh, it would be interesting to see that and, and, you know, do something like Christopher Nolan did with the Batman films where, you know, it becomes a thinking man's Batman. And who would have thunk that was even possible? Um, uh, Chris, you've, you've worked with some big stars. And, you know, for most of us, we're movie fans and we don't know the ins and outs of, 
of how all this works. But, you know, I, I look back at, at your background, and you've worked with some unknown folks too, but, you know, big names like Jacqueline Bissett have been in your movie. You know, Campbell Scott stars in your new movie, George C. Scott's son and, and Colleen Dewurst, and, and he's done a bunch of big movies uh, as well. How do you get an actor of some note like that to come in and do an independent film when arguably much of the time they can make a whole lot more money doing something else? How do you appeal to them to say, hey, look at this? Well, it's always on the basis of your script and your reputation that you approach them. Unfortunately, now we live in a in a world, a movie-making world, where many fine actors who might formerly have wanted to be available for a smaller independent film are working very steadily uh, due to the amount of original content that is being made by companies like Amazon Studios and Netflix for origination as a uh, uh, online content. So it's a little bit harder to reach those those individuals uh, on the basis of just a good script. What's your favorite part of your job? What what still makes you get excited to go in and make a movie? Because it's got to be tough. I mean, you, you do kind of almost, I don't want to say everything, but I mean, you write these things and you direct these things and it's your concept and, and you live them. It takes you a long time to do them. So, you know, what's, what's still fun for you? What do you still get a charge out of? I get a charge out of all of it. I'm not temperamentally that well suited to being in production, uh, that highly concentrated period of a few weeks when you're actually shooting a film. Some people really thrive on that energy. And for me, uh, it just winds up being very stressful because usually I'm also concerned with not only directing, but with the logistical and practical producing aspects of it, uh, of necessity. So it's very rare that I can just relax into the role of being a director only. But nearly everything else, uh, the writing of a film and the editing of it is is extremely rewarding, particularly the editing, because you have the material in front of you and you really feel as if, well, you feel as if you're trying to bring it to its optimal state. And if you're lucky enough to collaborate with a good editor like Curtis Clayton, uh, with whom I collaborated on this film, uh, as well as several others before this, you know, it's it's a really joy uh, joyful experience to see the film take shape in that way. You know, that's a really interesting answer, and it's totally not what I thought you would say. You know, you again, looking at it from the outside, you would think, man, it must be a blast to be out there making the movie and, and being involved with all these creative people around you and, and doing that piece, as opposed to, and I have been in an editing suite, you know, where you're locked up in, in this tiny room for 12 to 14 hours a day, uh, getting the minutia down uh, second by second. But But that second piece is incredibly important. And for you, that's actually more satisfying, huh? I'm not sure if I would say it's more satisfying, but it's it's a little bit less stressful, obviously. Uh, but I must say that in that concentrated, um, high-energy environment of actually being in production, a lot of things happen that you know, don't happen at other times, and and there is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful coalescence of energies that happens, uh, uh, an alchemy even between yourself and the actors, and between the other creative personnel who are designing and photographing the film. So, that type of collaboration is really. Uh, is really rewarding, and I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to underplay it at all, but simply to say that it's rare that I have the chance to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, uh, I'm sure, a lot of plates that are spinning for somebody like you when when something like that is going on. Uh, that's, Christopher that's Munch a is our good guest. way to describe it. Is it <laughs> a lot of plates spinning? A lot yeah. happening. Good and, way to describe it. And when you do it on a, a smaller budget, when you don't have a hundred million dollar big Hollywood budget, 
Um, do you have to move a whole lot faster and get things done and then kind of hope that you've captured on film what you need when you get into the editing bay? Well, I know that that often is the approach that's used by low-budget or, or micro-budget filmmaking. Uh, but for me, you know, I've always tried to take the approach of taking as much time as is necessary and scaling back the uh, number of personnel and other aspects of the production in order to buy the time uh, to do it properly. Um, so that, that's been my approach, but it's not everybody's approach. Some people work with better with a larger company. I work better with a tiny, uh, a tiny company um, and having, you know, having the time to, to do it properly. I grew up, Chris, in um, southern West Virginia, in the coal fields of the Appalachians, so I'm a, a proud West Virginia guy. And my very first exposure to independent cinema was a movie called Mate One by John Sayles. Sure. Um, you know that movie? I do, yes. And Mate One only came to my attention because the town of Mate One was literally right over the mountain from where I grew up. And so, you know, a movie that comes out about a small town uh, when you grow up in a town of 3,000 yourself is is a big deal. And, and I was struck, even the first time I saw that movie, over 30 years ago, by how beautiful the photography was. And and I learned, you know, later as a grown-up, as I really looked at that movie, there was a great cinematographer named Haskell Wexler who did that movie. Um, yes. And then I saw The 11th Green, and immediately I put those two films together in the way they look. I just thought, uh, it, without fanboying all over you here, that The 11th Green just looked amazing in the way that, that you captured that beautiful desert landscape around Palm Springs. So... I, I want to ask you a little bit about the cinematography for that movie and how you got it to look so amazing. Well, that's that's quite a compliment to compare it to Haskell Wexler, who who truly was one of the greats, and I'm sure that our cinematographer Sarah Garth will will appreciate that. Um, you know, in that area of the California desert, uh, the light really is amazing, but it's really amazing for a relatively small part of the day. So right. I think that uh, I think that my uh, DP was a little bit biting her nails uh, uh, as I as she saw me waiting and waiting and waiting until uh, it was getting later and later and later. And we were shooting at a time of the year when the days were not all that long um, due to the fact that had we been shooting in summertime when the days were longest, the heat would have been kind of unbearable. So um, really the exteriors uh, were a pleasure to shoot. We also you know, it was a pleasure to shoot in the house where we were working, uh, which is the main location of the film, and which is architecturally very interesting. We were just very fortunate to find this house that was, in effect, a time capsule and uh, served the purposes of our story very well, although it was not actually located on a golf fairway, as was uh, the house that Eisenhower occupied in his post-presidential winters in Palm Desert. You know, we we should probably talk a little bit about the film for the folks that haven't seen it yet, because as we record this podcast, you know, it's it's just now coming out. So the Eleventh Green, uh, you know, is is it touches on science fiction and it's got this sort of mind bending history piece. And if you're a fan of uh, the X Files, you're a fan of that old Leonard Nimoy TV show in search of. It has elements of all that, but. For you, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Chris, I understand you got a new movie out. What's it about? What do you say? Well, I say that it's the story of a contemporary journalist who uh, backs into a 60-year-old mystery involving President Eisenhower. And, and that mystery, of course, 
is his long alleged involvement in UFO events in the 1950s during his presidency. And you came at this movie in a whole different way, though. This is not a, uh, you know, Independence Day, big shoot 'em up alien kind of movie. This is a very cerebral movie that touches on that. So it's a whole different take on it. Well, yes. And my uh, the entry point for me into the story really was this emotional what if involving President Eisenhower, who obviously was a national hero. He was uh, the supreme commander of Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe during the Second World War. He was subsequently the first head of NATO, uh, the president of Columbia University. And then he was the American president, the American president for eight years. Um, so the idea of how this this man who was not known to have had an extraordinary uh, uh, ego or uh, predisposition towards personal power, how he might have reflected back uh, on uh, such events had they occurred from the perspective of the end of his life. And would there be any regrets about the actions that were taken? And the film sort of uh, well, subscribes to the proposition um, and conforms with the folklore uh, in the sense that we suppose that he did have these face-to-face -face meetings with uh, one or more representatives of other civilizations and uh, that he rejected uh, on behalf of his people the offer that uh, they could help us to understand and utilize technology that we had already recovered from crashed flying saucers and that uh, the only way that that would happen, uh, at least from the perspective of the visitors, the only way that they would help us in that regard is if it were for the benefit of everyone on the planet. And we, of course, felt that it was necessary to maintain a military advantage over the people we felt were our enemies then. So I know you're making a movie and uh, and you're, you know, in, in essence, uh, it is a thinking man's movie, but you are also trying to sell popcorn here and, and help people have an enjoyable night at the, at the movies. Um, do you personally believe that we've been visited by uh, extraterrestrials? Where do you come down on that? I personally do, yes, although I think where a lot of people run afoul in this whole business is by conflating the reality of UFOs, which empirically exist. I mean, that's really not in question with the more speculative uh, so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, as far as who's piloting these these UFOs. So um, again, I personally, yes, subscribe to the, to the idea that we've been visited in, in various ways, uh, uh, but I was seeking to make a film that was not preaching to the choir by any means. It, it uh, deals with other themes, um, the evolution of these highly compartmentalized uh, classified aerospace programs um, and, uh, you know, the evolution of our national security state and uh, the dilemma presumably faced by anybody in high elected office who doesn't really have the full picture of, of what's going on, maybe only part of it, and maybe only, as Ike says in the film, uh, enough to convince you that the secrecy needs to continue. In, in the movie, Campbell Scott plays this uh, sort of, uh, you know, bootstrapped uh, online video journalist who, you know, works to expose things as a, a sort of a modern day Woodward and Bernstein without maybe the financial backing of the Washington Post. Um, and then through this confluence of events in the film, it comes really close to that. 
Do you think there's a role for for journalism, mainstream journalism, to really dive into this question of extraterrestrials and UFOs more? Because it's always kind of uh, been this side thing that's kind of an afterthought and a little jokey. So do you think there's a there's a place for journalism to really dive into it? Definitely, definitely. And hopefully that's changing, you know, because as you point out, there has been a long history of media dismissing the phenomenon, uh, marginalizing it, um, uh, really only going with it to the extent that it conforms to the, the giggle factor, as it were. Um, now, I think what we see, particularly since 2017, when the New York Times uh, began running uh, several stories uh, about the U.S. military's engagement with anomalous phenomena, uh, which were accompanied by official videos. Um, uh, since that time and the presentation of that material in a very sober way that takes care not to conflate it with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, I think that there has been a greater receptivity on the part of readers. And as there's greater receptivity with readers, I think that the media will step up to the plate. But in term, historically speaking, it's a very uh, it's a very checkered history uh, as far as the way in which this subject has been covered. The way you you visualized um, the UFOs in the film and and the extraterrestrial beings and, and all that was sort of a, a, you know a lo-fi almost a you know an homage to those nineteen fifties sci fi movies and. And again, as a guy who doesn't make movies, I just talk for a living. I wonder if, if a lot of that had to do with um, with budget constraints or was it intentional on your part that you wanted it to have that retro feel as you touched back to the Eisenhower era or both? I think it probably is a combination of both. Certainly with respect to the historical footage, uh, there was an intention to depict the aerial objects um, in a way that was, as you say, lo-fi. Um, as far as the contemporary or more contemporary objects, uh, that really was an organic outgrowth of the type of filmmaking that it was. And certainly in this day and age, it's possible to dazzle people with all sorts of special effects, uh, visual effects. But that was not something that I really wanted to do with this movie. Um, uh, so although it was an organic outgrowth, um, also I think there was a concern for not being too overblown uh, with with the visual effects, not too much whiz bang flash stuff to take away from the the performances. And one of those performances that I thought was really on point was this guy that that uh, you brought in to play a very Obama like president who, through an interesting series of events in the film, actually has uh, conversations with Eisenhower, who of course is long since passed, and, and those guys never met. Uh, in person. So talk to me a little bit about your Obama-like president and the actor who played him. Yes, well, my hat is off to Laith Burke, the actor who plays our president. Uh, he's He was literally the first person who came in to read for Tina Becker, our casting director, and she and I were both just um, floored <laughs> by how right Laith was for the part. And uh, I don't mean right in the sense of doing a good imitation of somebody, but right in the sense of being a very, very solid actor who effortlessly, seemingly, uh, uh, can evoke what we were trying to evoke. So the idea of introducing a second president into the storyline really provided an entry point into so-called exopolitics or the relationship between the nation state and uh, the citizenry with regard to uh, 
other otherworldly visitors. And uh, it seemed that by having a dialogue between these two individuals, uh, one could bring out more information uh, in a way that would be not only interesting to the audience, but possibly a different perspective than many of us have on the subject of UFOs. I thought that that his performance um, as the as I said the Obama like president was so on point because it wasn't he, he wasn't a mimic he wasn't an impersonator um, he certainly looked enough like the president and had the the vocal characteristics that you there was no question of, of who it was but it's a really fine line I think between being uh, you know, an impersonator like you would see somebody do on Saturday Night Live, for example, and and what he did in this movie, and I'm not sure I can articulate it well, but but do you understand what I mean? In, in that it's a, a it's a great reading of that character, but it certainly was not an impersonation. No, I understand what you're saying, and I think as an audience member, some of the biographical performances that I've most admire have been those that uh, do a very good job of suggesting the character but are not necessarily, uh, you know, strong uh, uh, imitations of, of the character. And certainly an example of that was, was Ian Hart, my, my dear friend who played in my first feature uh, as, as John Lennon and also appears in the 11th Green as uh, Cold Warrior uh, James Forrestal. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, he certainly looked, uh, he had a passing resemblance to John Lennon, but it, it did not mimic him in any way. And and I thought that uh, that Leith Burke somehow managed to walk that fine line um, as this Obama-like president. And I keep saying that, and, and I have to ask you, so why not just call him President Obama in this film when he was you know, clearly modeled after that guy? What was the creative thought there? Well, that's a good point. And originally when I wrote the story, Obama was the sitting president, and I didn't want to try and depict uh, a sitting president in a fictional way in a motion picture. In fact, I had seen what had happened a few years earlier when a very good British film uh, came out uh, 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 called Death of a President uh, that was about uh, a hypothetical assassination of George Bush and how negatively it was received in the United States despite some of the very interesting issues that it, that it brought up. And in fact, it was denounced from <laughs> the Senate by uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. However, uh, in this case, there were other reasons for not wanting to actually name our character as Barack Obama. Uh, for instance, uh, well, this is more of a spoiler, but there are dramatic points that I would not uh, historically attribute to that person, you know, historically speaking, and I, I have no idea what his actual experience was with the subject of UFOs and extraterrestrial visitation. So I, I felt that it was more useful to um, uh, more useful to have a character who wasn't literally intended to depict uh, that man. Christopher Munch, their guest. The, the movie is The 11th Green, and it's available on theatrical and home platforms, including at your website, ChristopherMunch.com. Um, your thoughts about releasing a movie in the middle of this really strange time in the world where you know, most of us are, are not able to go to the movie theaters to see films and, and we're watching from home. Um, did that give you pause on releasing the movie now, or is this, uh, is this okay with you? you know, what do you think about the whole state of filmmaking today? 
Well, certainly everybody is having to change. There's no question about that. With respect to this film, it was actually completed more than a year ago, so I was aching <laughs> for it to get out. Yeah. And in all, in all honesty, I couldn't get arrested with the film uh, for a long time. No film festival would show it until uh, uh, David Anson programmed it for the Palm Springs International Film Festival in January. And David, I've known for many years and respected a great deal as a writer, as the former critic for Newsweek magazine. And he really got the film. And that was the beginning, I suppose, of feeling like, well, maybe maybe it actually succeeded on some levels and maybe it would uh, reach an audience. So I do feel that there has been an element of timing having to do with the film. Um, where the audience is more receptive now, perhaps partly owing to these uh, stories that have appeared in the mainstream media, in the Times, in the Washington Post, since late 2017, um, dealing with the subject of historical encounters between uh, the U.S. military and UFOs. And perhaps the audience is a little more receptive at this time. And of course, I've recently been very heartened by some of the positive press that we've received, which further uh, reinforces the idea that, well, maybe maybe I wasn't totally off base with the film. <laughs> Do you get too close to them? I mean, you, you work and you put your blood, sweat, and tears into these films for, I guess, in some cases, years at a time. Uh, so are you too close to them to be objective when they're finished, to know whether they're really good or not? Well, you have to rely on feedback, obviously, from your brain trust while you're in production and post-production, uh, which is why having such a good editor as, as Curtis Clayton at your side <laughs> is, is extremely helpful in helping you to realize. For instance, we had a scene in the film that I liked very much uh, uh, that was a flashback to Eisenhower in the White House during his presidency and a kind of fateful uh, discussion that he had with his national security advisor, Robert Cutler. However, the place where it was written into the film was such that by that point in the movie, we were already on a kind of roller coaster trajectory towards its conclusion. And this particular scene would have represented uh, too much of a detour. So you know, had I had no objectivity myself or had I been too wedded to the way the film was shot, I might not have seen the necessity of, of that scene coming out. So in answer to your question, it is it is a constant recalibration and balancing act to regain your perspective at various points. Um, and uh, again, you, you do rely on showing it to other people and uh, feeling, even if you don't have any direct feedback from the audience members, I find that just doing small test screenings uh, and being in the room with an audience can really provide a lot of insight. That's got to be hard, though, as a guy who this is your whole conception, you know, from start to finish. Um, if if you do get negative feedback, I guess nobody likes to be told their baby's ugly. So how do you deal with that? Well, <laughs> hopefully uh, you have the resources to be able to recognize what is working and you get over it and you, you go on. And uh, which is why for me, it's important not to have a rushed period of post-production. Um, fortunately, we live in a time when interest, interest rates are low. So uh, the amount of time that one takes to complete a film is not as big a deal as if it uh, were in a time when interest rates were higher, I suppose. But um, it, it all depends on, on your working setup. And again, for me, I've refined over the years the idea of taking the time that's necessary to really 
you know, find the film and to find what is the optimal execution of the film. Um, and, and that does take a lot of trial and error, even, even with a good editor uh, working with you. I would have to think that, uh, you know, as, as you go through that process, that it must be incredibly nerve-jangling uh, to be in a test screening room where they're watching your film and you're just hoping it's okay. And, and you know it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. I mean, Chris, you're a smart guy. You know that, that this film is not going to be everyone's cup of tea, as some of your other films were too. And yet it's got uh, to be a challenge for you to to not just want to stand up and say, but wait a minute, you, you don't get it. You don't see what I'm doing here. Yes. Well, when I say test screenings, I don't mean sort of in the studio sense where you have a, a specifically recruited type of audience coming in, but I mean a brain trust that you can rely on whose uh, sensibilities you understand and you understand what their comments mean and you can really utilize them constructively. Um, I think certainly at various points in the editing process, uh, not only me, but any director can be derailed uh, by uh, feedback, uh, not even negative feedback, but I think that oftentimes your your test uh, audience will try to be helpful by being imaginative and uh, trying to uh, think of things uh, that might improve it, you know, do this, do this, and the old adage of getting to Oz faster, you know, um, how does that, how does that affect one as a director and and in the worst case it means that you start hacking away at it in order to get to oz faster uh but again you have to you have to balance all these all these reactions and and try and understand where they're coming from and and what may lay behind the words that your test audience is actually saying you uh you mentioned you can take a little bit longer because the interest rates are low which made me smile you can't see me smile on a podcast but i smiled because as I look back at, at your history, man, you take a long time between movies. You, uh, you do not uh, you know, rush these things out. This is not a Roger Corman uh, type uh, deal where you know, you're cranking out two or three a year. I wonder if that is intentional on your part. I wonder if uh, you play a lot of golf. I wonder why, why it takes so long between movies. I've wondered that myself, and I should say that it's it's usually not my intention to take that long, uh, but it's the way things work out. And certainly in the case of the last two movies, there's been quite a learning curve for me just in coming to some understanding of my subject matter where I felt that I could actually be some sort of voice uh, with respect to that subject. And I've found that the delays, the normal producerial delays that one experiences in trying to finance a film usually are just a ruse to get you to spend more time on the script and, and really getting the script right. Um, but I would like to make films faster. You know, I, I don't see any reason why I couldn't make a film every three years. Um, that, that seems like a reasonable period of time for me. And to consider that nine years <laughs> has passed uh, between the 11th Green and my previous film kind of boggles even my mind. <laughs> it hasn't seemed like that long. So your previous film, if I have the chronology right, was about, uh, or at least touched on, the Sasquatch Bigfoot uh, creature. And then you do an extraterrestrial movie, and, and it is very much like the old TV show In Search Of. So I'm wondering if the next film will be sort of Loch Ness Monster or Stonehenge. Do you know what you're going to do next? 
I don't. There are a number of things that I'm looking at, uh, and I should say that I, in an overarching sense, I don't really have any particular uh, commitment to making films about anomalous subjects. I, I, you know, I have no interest in ghost hunting or some of the other uh, paranormal phenomena that seem to get a lot of uh, play on History Channel and so forth. Um, but I would say that my engagement with these two particular subjects came about in, in a very organic way. And I had made a short film actually in 2013 that touched on the subject of breakthrough energy and the idea that there have been certain breakthrough energy technologies that have been suppressed from the public or rather that certain inventors have, have uh, perhaps found their way to some of these, these uh, occulted technologies and that their work was suppressed. So I think that probably was a bit of an entry point for me into the subject of UFOs since Obviously, the subject of UFOs is kind of inextricably bound up with that of, of breakthrough energy and exotic propulsion. Do you have a favorite uh, movie in the sort of UFO extraterrestrial world besides your own? Well, let me see. Uh, some of the classics, of course. 2001 is my probably one of my favorite films of all time uh, of any sort. Um, growing up, I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I admired a great deal, um, even though it's uh, very much a, a familiar, accessible form. Um, it's a film that got a lot of things right, I think, particularly the, the way in which the protagonists are deeply, deeply affected by their close encounter events, emotionally deeply affected by those events. And another thing that the film did extremely well uh, that I appreciate is that it suggested the breadth of the cover-up without actually going into a lot of detail about it. Just a few key scenes really let us know the degree to which it was being hidden. And uh, I think, I can only think that that might have come about because of the long evolution of the screenplay that that film underwent. Indeed, it started out in the hands of Paul Schrader as uh, a much different film. Um, so I admired those films. I admired The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, Nicholas Rogue's film with David Bowie. I admired uh, John Sayles' film, The Brother from Another Planet, a very low-budget effort. More recently, I admired uh, the film UFO by Ryan Esslinger, Esslinger um, a smaller American independent film that was inspired by the uh, so-called O'Hare Airport incident of a few years ago. Christopher Munch is our guest today. We're talking about his new movie, The Eleventh Green, available uh, in a theatrical at home package at ChristopherMunch.com and some other spots online as well. And it will be showing at, at some theaters around the country, depending on uh, where you are as to whether your theaters are open. You can keep an eye out for it, but definitely visit ChristopherMunch.com. And that is the correct rep or website, correct? Yes, uh -huh. ChristopherMunch.com has a link directly to the purchase page. And uh, you're doing something pretty interesting, I think, with this theatrical at, at home uh, release where you're helping the independent cinemas around the country that would normally have shown the film but have to be shuttered by the pandemic and have really taken it in the shorts financially by doing a revenue share with them. That's a really great idea. It makes a lot of sense it, it, because we all have a vested interest in theaters staying alive, uh, but we also have a vested interest in accessing those audiences. Uh, so the theaters do a great service for us by uh, driving their audience to our film and uh, you know, giving them a revenue stream from the streaming. Uh, helps them out. You know, obviously this film is very much a theatrical film that plays better in a theater, um, but at this point, 
this is the way that it can be seen. And, and the upside of that is that a lot of people in locations that wouldn't normally have access to the film in a theater will be able to see it uh, much sooner than they would be if they were waiting for it to come out uh, in regular VOD on Amazon and iTunes and the usual platforms. Theatrical at home at ChristopherMunch.com for uh, the 11th Green, and I think it's great. You're doing well by doing good uh, by helping out those independent cinemas who are like independent bookstores all over the country. They're really hurting right now. So uh, well done, sir. And and as we wrap up, is there anything that, that you would like our listeners to know about this movie? I think, you know, I hope that they find it entertaining. I would simply ask them to keep an open mind. I would ask them to look within themselves for their own reaction. You know, how are they reacting to the possibility that the events that are depicted in the film were factual, were historically factual, are factual in an ongoing basis? Just to consider that what-if proposition and maybe uh, turn away from the, uh, the historical giggle factor that we've all had to be indoctrinated into over the years. It's definitely a movie that stuck with me. I think it will do the same for you. Christopher Munch, congratulations on the 11th Green, and thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks very much, Burke. It's a pleasure. The movie The 11th Green, available at ChristopherMunch.com, the theatrical at-home platform, and at select theaters around the country. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C., the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. Thank you so much for listening. Now go out and make it a great day.